one of the big pitfalls, I feel like women especially fall into this, is being like, oh, but you know, my company is not making any money. So it's basically worth nothing. So when I give you equity, I'm trying to map out what the value of the equity is. And then I'm coming up with like, I'll give you 15% of the company because I only put 10,000. Do not mix math with these percentages. The percentage of your company is like a bet. You're like giving a portion of the company and you're thinking about the entire company basically up until you raise an equity financing and you're saying, I'm gonna allocate it in this way. So I recommend that founders set aside a certain amount of the company that they plan to issue to service providers and they do like a hiring plan. It's homework. I assign homework to my clients, guys. I do it. Hello, I'm Sami Haryan. I'm a tech philosopher and the founder of Impeak. My guest on today's show is Aravinda Sashadri of Ventures Council. She's a brilliant startup lawyer from Silicon Valley who's recently come on board as our service partner at Inpeak. I wish I had someone teaching me all the things that I've learned from Aravinda when I first started building my own company. There are many things that I love about Aravinda and her team. One of them is their dedication to support impact-driven founders of diverse backgrounds. I took a lot of important lessons from this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, and one of my favorite people on the planet is here today. <laughs> so Aravinda, I'm so glad to have you here. You did a session on the platform. I have to say like, you have this thing about you that I really like. You have this incredible energy. You really wanna help people. And you've just also come on board as one of our service partners. Uh, I'm really proud to have you. I think that you bring so much value. You are uh, one of the most amazing lawyers that I know out there. And uh, just from the way that you interact with people. And uh, obviously, I'm based in the UK. Our company is UK based. So there are a lot of things that you talk about that doesn't apply to me yet. Um, we will be having a, a US um, entity soon enough. So at that point, we will come to you. And and um, But there are certain things that really transcend uh, regardless of where you come from. So tell me a little bit about you, yourself, your background. And then I want to ask you for some like really important fundamentals. Some of the questions I have, some of the mistakes that I've made in incorporating my company, you know, giving shares to people the way that I thought about it. Um, so, so I want to get to those and, and, and I want to see whether you see those patterns in other founders and, and how we can overcome them. And then I want you to explain a little bit about this whole safe system, which you guys have in the US and how it's different from uh, you know, the rest of the world and, and whether you are aware of similar kind of arrangements in, um, in other countries. So first things first, let's get to your story. Um, what made you want to get started in this crazy startup world uh, legal field? It's a great question, and I would say um, I was always in, I was always drawn by the energy, the intensity, the fast pace, the cutting edge of startup world, and I kind of just love the energy and wanted to be a part of it. Um, so I went to Stanford for law school. I started a big law firm uh, that had some notable startups on the roster, and pretty quickly realized that they do an amazing job. For startups who already have gobs of money and the smaller folks that I had really come there to support, um, it was often just me 
Um, very busy. I'm on an M&A and an IPO and a financing all at the same time. I have like 50 of these small companies that I'm trying to support. There's like, everybody else is too busy. I'm super junior. I don't have experience. I'm just trying to do what I can for these clients, but it ends up being kind of crappy, <laughs> like bad quality work, late, not mindful, not thoughtful. Um, and these clients are paying so much for it. So it just felt really demoralizing for me, probably for the clients. And, you know, the firm was delighted and was just raking it in and happy with everything. So I had a colleague who felt very similarly. He started a boutique law firm. I joined as one of the first attorneys there. I was there for eight years. I was a partner for the last five years. And it was very focused on early stage companies, not out chasing these big deals. The, the way that we practiced was way better. But I'd always cared a lot about diversity. So I was president of all these alphabet groups in uh, undergrad and, and law school when I was at NYU undergrad. And then I also, as a partner, really tried to recruit, mentor, and retain a very diverse team. And in corporate, I mean, we were like the most diverse corporate team I had ever seen. So I felt really good about that. Then I wanted to give back to the community, um, to the startups. And uh, I tried to do these trainings and workshops for startups who... Uh, you know, women, you know, just startups who are not already in the network, basically, on uh, women, BIPOC, LGBTQIA, on some basic concepts like that we're going to talk about today, too. Like, what is dilution? Um, what's the difference between debt versus equity uh, financing? And I could not fill them out with our own clients. So that was very shocking because I had built this very diverse firm. I thought if you build it, they will come. And I had to think and realize that, you know, I don't have... We don't do outreach. We don't do marketing. It's all word of mouth. And the founder's great, but he's a straight white guy. And so there's limited diversity. And if you weren't within the networks, you know, we would always prioritize referred clients, just like every other boutique. So if you weren't already in the networks, it was really difficult to kind of get access to really good legal. And so I basically decided I had to try and fix this issue. Uh, because it's like debilitating not to have access to good legal. And furthermore, if we're able to be that really reliable uh, resource, the way I describe it is there is a section of every founder's brain that's low-key freaking out about legal at all times, like a broken smoke detector, just beeping in your ear. And, you know, if you have high cost or un inaccessible legal counsel, that's very transactional. You don't feel like you can offload that. But if you find someone you can really trust with like reasonable rates, who you know has your best interests at heart, you can kind of just give this piece of screaming mess crazy to them and you can unlock a lot of mental capacity yourself and then you can just do better yourself. And that's, I want more startups, especially diverse led ones to have that enabling relationship with their lawyers. So that was the reason why you felt like, I mean, of course, there's, there's, there's a fact that you really cared about that, but also you um, probably saw a gap. Oh, I need. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was true. When I started this firm, you know, less than five years ago, I was scared. I didn't know if there would be enough clients. And like, I immediately was over, like, I immediately had way too much work and had to like figure out some to hire, to hire the right team. And yeah. luckily I'm now at the spot where I have this amazing team. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, okay. So now Here's what happens as a founder when you get and when you start. Uh, I'm just from my story, and I know from a lot of people, similar kind of thing happens. When you first start, you, you're like, you have this big pie, right? Or big cake. Uh, you can think of it like a, a full pie. That's your shares, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you have a co founder, you start with already half the share, uh, half the pie. But, but at first, 
it seems like there's so much of it. You're like a hundred percent. I can give so much away to, to get this and that. Right. And, and I made that mistake, like straight off the bat, I was like, um, I would ask somebody to come in and do something for us. And I'd be like offering them like 1% of the company. It's like not yeah. like what 1% means. Like, yeah. how much. well, of course, at the time it felt like the value that that person was going to bring right. was right. worth You're it. Like, this is a make or break thing. I need someone to do it. And I will say this isn't, you're not alone. Uh, particularly women tend to give equity to people to give too much equity and to give it to people that maybe it's not the best way to incentivize their, their work. The way I've found to view this so that you can get more in line with what is standard and what's best for the company is eventually an investor if you're raising, if you're, if you're building a company that's going to raise investment an investor is going to look at your capitalization table or cap table, they want the, the more people that are continually providing services to the company who are on that cap table versus people who are not providing services. Like this is a mental calculation that they do because in their view, the people who provided services and left are dead weight. You know, they're going to get the benefit, but they're not going to contribute to the to the um, company's success. So that's totally fine. Like that happens. And as the company goes along, that just naturally proportionately changes. But when you give somebody 1% for like doing a, a small project for you, then you're weighting it way in the, you know, from the start, you're kind of imbalancing that percentage balance. And I definitely have seen people give equity to investors that invested in prior companies that didn't work out. Every person on the cap table needs to have provided incredible value or preferably are continuing to provide incredible value. And it's not it's not fair because like the founder, for example, might have been working on this for four years, but and we'll talk a little bit. I, I would say the strongest tool in your arsenal to align that incentives is vesting. So we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, I, I really am a big proponent of time-based vesting. I know people get really excited about milestones. That always leads to, that has a much higher potential of leading to an argument and disputes in startups can like kill the company. So I'm like big fan of time-based vesting, um, but you can be thoughtful about it. And so I encounter founders who've worked on something for four years and they're setting things up. And I'm like, I actually suggest you impose vesting. And they're like, but I've worked on it for so long. I'm like, yes, but- when an investor is coming in, they don't know that this is your pride and joy. And if you're not going to leave within four years anyway, you know, what's what's the harm? And it makes the company look more investable to have at least two years of of uh, unvested shares. And so that's kind of a rambly answer. But I think there's a it's way to a, view this. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's such a good answer, actually. But what if you haven't done that? I think the, the problem is that, you know, for many of us, like in the beginning, when you're starting, you're you so made mistakes excited already. about your yeah. vision. Yeah, like yes. you're so excited yeah. about your vision. and you're so, like so the thing I'd say, two things about, and I joke about this because especially with investors, I tell my clients, you know, you can divorce your spouse way easier than you can get an investor off your cap table. So you got to do some research, make sure they're, you, you know, they're really going to be helpful and uh, that they have a good reputation in the community for backing the founders when the shit hits the fan. So I, I do think that's important. But I also know that dilution happens to everyone equally, except for certain stakeholders. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But dilution will happen to everybody over time. 
And if somebody had provided services and like maybe got an outsized equity grant, they're going to get diluted. Somebody who continues to be involved in the company has the potential of receiving additional shares. It doesn't happen all the time and it has to be the right circumstance. And there has to be like the company has to be killing it so that you can negotiate that maybe as a founder, but you have the opportunity to get more shares and they never will. So I would not stress too much about the mistakes in the past, unless you think there's a way to kind of negotiate them out of it, but it has to be consensual. Like you cannot unilaterally bump them out unless you have imposed vesting. And if you impose vesting, which means that although the person may own the shares or if they have an option, they get the option, they only have the right to keep those shares over time as they continue to provide services. So if you had two-year vesting that was monthly and you left after a year, half of the shares would be repurchased by the company, repurchasable. And that means that you're incentivizing them to continue providing services. And you're kind of hedging your bets in case it's somebody that doesn't work out. For employees, it's typically four-year vesting monthly with a one-year cliff. So until you reach that one-year mark, and we really know that you're kind of a great fit for the company, you wouldn't vest in any shares. And that helps address a lot of the concern around, um, is this person going to work out? Um, and I definitely see people like grant, like a small equity, equity grant first, and then more later as they see how it works out. I, I advise against that because the price of the shares could increase in that time. And then it's not as powerful of an incentive. Uh, to the employee or to the service provider. But I think vesting is really helpful. Dilution solves a lot of these ills over time. If you continue to remain engaged with the company, you have the opportunity to receive additional shares in the future. So like, don't freak out if this has happened, learn the lesson though, and identify like what are, what is normal to give, uh, uh, to, like for example, an advisor, I say 0.1% to 0.25%. And like, if it's somebody's really plugged in in the industry, like 0.5%, and if it's some person that's going to absolutely accelerate, maybe, I mean, I've never seen it justified, but like 1% then. So if you're like giving 1% to a consultant who did like, and, and I will say one of the big pitfalls, I, I feel like women especially fall into this, is being like, Oh, but you know, my company is not making any money. So it's basically worth nothing. So when I give you equity, I'm trying to map out what the value of the equity is. And then I'm coming up with like, I'll give you 15% of the company because I only put 10,000. Do not mix math with these percentages. The percentage of your company is like a bet. You're like giving a, a portion of the company and you're thinking about the entire company basically up until you raise an equity financing and you're saying, I'm going to allocate it in this way. So I recommend that founders set aside a certain amount of the company that they plan to issue to service providers. And they do like a hiring plan. It's homework. I assign homework to my clients, guys. I do it because thinking through that hiring plan really helps you determine what your stock plan size should be, which helps you right size the grants, which helps you check against like comp comparables, like what is normal to provide for this kind of service in this space. Um, and it actually helps limit your dilution in future rounds as safes convert. And that's, that's a long answer, but I, but I, I feel very answer. strongly about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's so complex though. Like what you say in principle, it all makes sense. At the time, it all makes sense. But what, for example, a couple of real life situations that I have encountered. One is that maybe you have a vision and then you pivot. 
And the people that you brought on board and you gave them shares in the company, like I I made that, um, you know, I I had that in the beginning because at first we started focusing on women and then we uh, pivoted away from that. So I had um, some of the people in the beginning. More inclusive. Yeah, exactly. We made it. We went from fan peak to in peak, in in for inclusive. Uh, yeah, we made it more inclusive. So, um, but but when we were fan peak in the beginning, and the company is still called Fem Talent, and and I want to talk to you about recap and restructuring, and and you know probably even shutting down, restarting. Like there's so many complex things, and I use these podcasts episodes as more of a consultation session because then what happens is that other people have the same questions and a real life kind of problem that for example I'm dealing with or or a challenge that I'm dealing with and I'm very open about it and people love it because then they have similar kind of situations and they're they can really relate to that so yes so so one of the things here is that maybe you have a vision in the beginning and that vision changes or 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 evolves necessarily not mm-hmm. necessarily change but evolves or like it, it becomes more inclusive etc but then those people that in the beginning you thought were going to bring so much value and those people don't necessarily align with your new vision and um and, and things change um, but yeah. you promise them something right so yeah. so how do you deal with that like what when there is a there's and, and honestly, so many companies pivot. Like it's this myth that the companies don't pivot or that like company knows what it's going to do right away. You kind of have to mess around a little bit. And, to, and it's a question of like, are you refining? Or are you completely pivoting? But regardless, uh, many companies pivot. I would say vesting helps a lot in those situations because if somebody was on a four-year vest and uh, they it's been a year and you pivoted, you can say, "Look, I I loved working with you, but um, this this isn't this service doesn't make sense for what we're doing going forward." And then maybe no shares are vested, or you give them some shares or some cash as severance or something like that. Um, advisors are typically on a shorter vesting schedule; two years is standard, sometimes even one year. So you may not know. But if you keep the grants moderate, it's just expected that there there will be people on the cap table who are not providing current value. And that's okay. Like that's the case for somebody who helped you get off the ground and totally deserves that equity. And it's just part of that natural balance. So I would say, um, don't stress that too much, but do use vesting as much as possible to help and, and be proactive. Don't don't uh, wait to have a tough conversation with someone about the pivot and about the fact that their services aren't 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 required anymore because vesting is time based. So the longer you put that off, um, you know, you're kind of leaking away equity in that way. Um, plus, I do find as a general rule for founders, those tough conversations are always better to be had earlier than later when you delay with some sort of hope of making it a softer or you know, once you've made the decision, I would say proceed and tell people about it in an honest and straightforward way. Um, delaying those conversations, I can't see one situation where it really helped things. So basically everything you say, it comes back to this thing of prevention as opposed to, you know, uh, cure, right? Like, So if you gave somebody shares and there was no vesting in it, you could definitely come back to them and say, look, any investor is going to expect that there be vesting. Can we set up a reasonable vesting schedule and talk about it with them? I think you can amend something to impose a vesting schedule later. There's no issue with that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've given too much equity, again, there's an opportunity. And you talked about the word recap, recapitalization, which is basically like, 
a generally in my experience, it's a very aggressive means of like cramming down the prior investors and stockholders and then like issuing new shares to like the people that are going to continue. That structure and that way of doing it results in more liability for the company, bad optics, bad broken relationships. It's like a an extreme measure that I wouldn't just do because. But you have to think about things like, and it's it's annoying, but my best advice to clients is to like make the business unbeatable, make it really great. Then you have the leverage to negotiate like an additional grant for yourself or an increase to the option plan to, to up, bump up all your team members. And ultimately, it's not a question of how many shares, it's a question of percentage. You're going to get diluted each time, but the value of the company is going to go up. So that helps you kind of keep it all in perspective. If if there are people with lots of shares, but then as, as the company raises more equity over time, there are more shares overall, like the market cap is higher, right? Then their shares are increasing in value, but you have more percentage of the company because you've gotten these additional grants and the value of the company is increasing. So there are ways that this just gets fixed naturally over time. And there are ways that you can proactively kind of readjust things later, but it has to be kind of in a normal because you're killing it at the company, because your vesting is almost up, there have to be good justifications. Otherwise, you create a basis for like liability from these folks that you're cramming down. And, you know, it's just not worth it for a startup, in my opinion. It can be, you know, it can be the end. Yes. Yeah, so, so recap is not ideal. Um, and then I suppose another option is to, if, if you have sufficiently pivoted, would you say it's a good idea to shut down and restart? Yeah, I do get this question a lot. And I would say it's a lot, it's expensive. So, um, and it's not the cleanest. So if you can manage to just even limp along and then get the company into a good position and solve things later, once you have more leverage, that's what I would recommend. That said, um, there are ways, especially if you literally are going to use none of the intellectual property that you have created in this existing company to create a new company. But there's always a question. There's always maybe some, some skepticism from the investors. Did you really use nothing? Did you really somehow this idea burst forth from her head like Athena from Zeus's head? Like, is this really the case? Or did you really, you know, use a lot of the time that you were spending talking with clients and insights from that time that you did on behalf of the company to come up with this idea and to like sort of move towards it? So there's always a potential question. That said, ideas are not patentable. So it's not about the idea. It's, it's more about the work. And um, that is that is an option. And it's not as messy of an option as something like a recap. But then you have to also wind down the company. Um, you got to, and if there is any IP that is crossover, you have to create it anew, or you have to figure out a way to purchase the IP from the company winding down in a, in a like fair third part. It's very complex. And that, for that, I would actually recommend speaking with a specialist around um, assignment for benefit of creditors or bankruptcy. You know, I know all of these specialists, but um, to loop them in, but that's like a complex situation. And my underlying advice for founders is that investors want everything on the corporate side to be simple, vanilla, like 
ideally when you're explaining this to the investor, they just drop into a light coma. It's so boring. Oh my God. And then you talk about the business and the, the, the TAM and all that. And they, they, they break out of the coma in a dramatic fashion. Okay. So the more complexity you add on the corporate side, maybe there's reasons for it. Um, but that makes it, that just is one factor that makes the company less attractive to investors as a very blanket rule. Okay. And would you say it's the same if you wanted to sell the company, it's the same issue? Like, like you need to keep it really as simple and vanilla as possible? Oh, yeah. So I think for acquisition, they, they care less about the makeup of the company in terms of who the money is going to, right? Like investors want to see that most of the shares are held by folks that continue to provide value to continue to accelerate the company. With an acquisition, the, the acquirer is going to have some sort of a package. They, they still would prefer that, right? Um, and actually, there's a nuance here. There's acceleration, which is you have this time-based vesting, but maybe when some event happens, you accelerate and some are all of the shares. And like you wouldn't normally invest it, but this event happens and you do that. For a lot of advisors, um, they have... 100% change of control acceleration. That means if you get acquired, they get all of their shares vested because maybe they help that acquisition, but nobody's going to take the advisor side in the new company that's getting acquired. So that's a way to kind of make sure that they get what they're needed. And also their grants should be pretty small. So it's not like a huge um, impact on the company. However, I've definitely seen founders say, look, why should I not get accelerated? Um, I helped, I did everything. I got the company here. But it makes the company less attractive to an acquirer if they have to come up with a whole new equity package rather than continuing at least vesting some of the prior equity package. And most startups, part of the acquisition is a hire. Part of it is either we want the team or we at least need this team to help integrate this into our system and like help it have a chance of succeeding. So investors view that if a founder had a hundred percent change of control acceleration, meaning once a, once an acquisition happened, all of their shares would vest, it's kind of shifting the value over to the founders, making the company less attractive to investors. And they don't think that's fair and it's not market. But from an acquirer's perspective, while they care about that for the folks they want to continue, they may not want to have everybody in the team on in the future, um, you know, in, in the new entity or in the, in integrated into their, their own company. So it's less of a concern for an investor. If there are people on the cap table who are not, I mean, th that's actually this, by the time you get acquired, most of the time, that is the case. There's a ton of people who have gotten you there and who no longer at the company and own a small piece of it. And that's normal and standard. Um, I think what they care more about is liability. Did you do things right? Are there angry people out there threatening to sue the company? Um, are the are the agreements solid on their ownership of IP? Did you get documentation signed by every service provider? Um, is the cap table very clean? Are there promised options that weren't granted? Like, did you do it in compliance with uh, rules and best practices around only issuing options when you have a 409A valuation? So like they care about a lot of things that overlap with investors, but they're weighted is more towards backwards looking, like what skeletons are in the closet. And while investors do a diligence process, it's never as deep as an acquirer. They care more about like, is this pretty good? And then like, do we see the future for this? Um, if that's helpful. 
that's yeah that's super helpful you know like you've got such a wealth of knowledge uh, i feel like there's so many things i want to go into but i'm going to contain myself and bring you back on um to to uh, talk specifically about some of the more complex things so uh, let's yeah. say if we have about 10 15 minutes from now what would be a, a, a topic that we can cover because i'm worried that if we go into safe we might just get stuck in that and, and it's going to go. Yeah, and it's kind of mathy, which is just hard to describe in a podcast. Um, so uh, let me just give a really top view of what a safe is. Yes, please. Safe yeah. stands for simple agreement for future equity. So, so for years and years, uh, the VC community has had this structure of a convertible note, which is a debt instrument which is like a loan that the company makes. But once you raise a priced equity round, it converts into equity. So that's the convertible part. And the note is like promissory note. Um, so they've had this for a really long time, but it used to only be used to, they would call it a bridge round. It would bridge a company between the last equity financing and the next equity financing. And then they realized, you know, it's so much cheaper and quicker. There's less diligence. There's less paper involved. It's more standardized. Let's just do that as the first investment. So you started doing notes as the first investment. And then you'd have these notes that had like an 18 month or 24 month maturity date and they would mature because they're debt instruments and they would be have been accruing interest as well. And the investors absolutely don't want some like 10% of their money back. They're like, no, let it ride and like try to raise another round so that I can actually get equity in a company that, that works. So they kept you know, typically you would just amend to extend the maturity date, but you had to have a maturity date because it was a debt instrument. So Y Combinator folks came up with the structure of a safe, which is very identical to a note other than there's no maturity date, there's no interest accrual, and arguably it's a security, not a debt instrument. And most newer investors, because it's just like a standard form, prefer the the safe and folks who've been investing for a really long time are used to notes and they they prefer notes and from the investor or from the founder's perspective you should just be like what are you're so smart absolutely notes are amazing like just agree with whatever they say because from your perspective it's not a significant difference in structure um and you know the interest rate is definitely like technically that makes a difference but it's marginal um, if we're talking about like getting money into the company or not. So my advice there is, it is the case that most companies are raising on safes or notes first. Um, I would say in the boom times, like actually weirdly during the pandemic, I was seeing crazy, like 20 million valuation first time safes based on very little. People just seem to have money burning their pockets. They need to like get out and deploy. But um the the range is uh, definitely more reasonable now. It's like I'd say between five and nine, five to nine for a very first round. Um, and it just it also varies depending on your jurisdiction. Like, sorry, your 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 geography. The Bay Area tends to have higher valuations. There, it's more competitive. There's a concentration, but um, there are higher valuations in more and less uh densely po densely investor populated regions um the valuations are lower so that means what does that mean that is actually a really important thing all these valuations are trying to do is help calculate how much of the company you are giving away in exchange for how much money so the lower the valuation the more of the company you're giving away for the same amount of money 
um, and vice versa. And the one sort of advice I have on that point is you want to set the valuation, your first round valuation, as high as you can reasonably get, but with the ability to still increase later because there's really bad optics and bad vibes. If you raise at a, a 9 million and then you like the equity financing is at 8 million, it, it doesn't mean they overpay. They still pay whatever price that the, the cash investors pay, but you know, they invested to see the, see the company grow. So I think that happens though. And I mean, you'll see this last uh, year has been brutal for the startup ecosystem. And we've definitely seen a lot of flat rounds and a lot of down rounds and a lot of companies going under maybe because of pride about not feeling, wanting to do a down round and not wanting to deal with that ego hit. Um, so there, but also the valuations in my opinion were a little bit too high. Um, in the frothy times. So this is like, hopefully more healthy, more sustainable, not a very popular opinion, especially for a founder trying to maximize your, how much you end up getting paid out after everything is send, said and done. Cause that's what this affects, right? Dilution affects your ability to get paid when the company is sold or when you go public or whatever. It, it reduces your percentage ownership of the company over time. And so you want to minimize that as much as possible. But at the same time, you want the company to be investable and you want it to be, and you need to, especially if you're starting out and you don't have cash, you need to incentivize service providers and equity is a great way to do that before you really have cash in the company. So it's all kind of a balancing act and you get better at it as you do it more and you will make mistakes. And my advice is like, most of those don't stress. None of them are catastrophic and it will solve itself over time. I can now see the value of being a multiple times founder because, um, you know, you learn all you of learn this. You learn so thing. much that yeah, first absolutely. time. Yeah. Like, by the time I start my next company, <laughs> I will have learned so much. And this is my second company already. But but the, the first one was very different. It was not a tech startup. It, it was, was services. A, it was right? services, right. And it's like it a world a of difference. It's a world yes. of difference. Yeah. Um, okay. So without going into too much of technical things, if, a founder, you know, if anybody who is listening to this, who is like either in a position that maybe they've already made some mistakes like I have, and uh, they're they are trying to kind of like minimize moving forward, or maybe they're at an earlier stage and, um, you know, it's like you're very excited in the beginning and you're, I mean, not that you're not excited afterwards, but in the beginning you're excited and you have a pie of 100%, you know, so, yeah. so you've got quite a lot to play with. And then as time goes by and you start bringing all these people and sometimes people pull their weight, sometimes they don't, it feels like you're maybe, um, you know, like you said, you have this dead weight with you, right? But if, if a founder was to have a toolkit of some sort, you know, like some kind of think of it as like a crystal ball that they could look, look into that and kind of like imagine what could go wrong. You know, do you have a tool? Uh, do you have a, do you have some kind of a toolkit? I feel like you should develop something like that. Like, I wish like there was like a founder toolkit that, that they could go into that like legal toolkit that they could go into that. And, and every time they wanted to make such decision, you know, or, or in the very beginning, like just to think about uh, thinking, like looking at into this crystal ball and thinking what could go wrong with all the different yeah. um, decisions that they make. Choices. Is there such a thing or like, can, uh, you know, because we talk about prevention. So in, in, in a health scenario, we would say, okay, take your supplements, eat 
better, sleep better, right? Is there like a similar kind of thing that we could do to avoid making mistakes so that we yeah, then look for cure? Can I tell you, it's such a good question. And what you're asking is why there is such a strong legal automation industry. Like everybody wants some way to just be able to like, why are we paying lawyers so much is basically what it comes down to. And I hear that because the rates that a lot of these large firms are charging are insane. And it makes it so that the the client doesn't feel like they can even, they have to just decide, like, can I just live with this uncertainty or can I, do I have to pay to try and resolve it? And hopefully, hopefully they'll get me something useful and maybe it'll just be legal gobbledygook and doesn't help me at all. So I, I hear that concern. And that is like what is spurring a lot of the legal automation industry. The problem is we're not at the point where AI can like, AI can be a tool, but it, it I, ideally it's used as a supplement. And the best solution is having a trusted legal counsel, unfortunately, honestly, in some ways that's not the case. So for formation, I'm gonna tell everybody, there's a tool called Clerky, C-L-E-R-K-Y. And I have no affiliation, like no kickbacks, nothing. But I hate fixing formation documents that somebody paid for to be done and they're done wrong. And like every other every other platform, uh, Stripe, uh, Atlas, Gust, uh, you know, LegalZoom, heaven forfend. They all are stuff where you have to pay a lawyer to fix it afterwards for startups. They might be fine for a, a number of other uses, but for startups, they don't. They, there's always something to fix. Clergy's the only one where I don't have to fix stuff, and um, I totally should have some sort of a affiliate relationship with I them because say, I do plug them everywhere, right? To, them, to bring um, them on, uh, you should introduce me to them. Yeah, Clerky, no, you should. You should actually. Um, and it was it, the documents are solid. I've taken companies through multiple rounds of uh, financings and acquisition, and no issues with those documents. They're solid. Um, the interface is a little bit clunky, but uh, a founder is able to navigate it themselves and handle it themselves. They may still want to talk to somebody about like, how big should my option pool be? What is the right vesting? But the defaults they have for vesting in there are are reasonable. And like you can, there's some resources online. So this is one way in which I think legal automation has been done correctly and usefully. And I use it. I don't do clean incorporations anymore. It's not cost effective for the client. And I just, I don't want to, even if they want it, I'm like, no, please just try and use this uh, resource. It's so much cheaper and the documents are really straightforward and you can change them too, right? Every time a client gives me a change, my team has to go through and make that change and it costs more. And so you, it's all flat fee for like your lifetime use of this service. Um, and so that is one way in which automation makes sense. And that will help a lot of these issues in terms of like, two co-founders, nobody has vesting, then a co-founder leaves, they own half of the company, like, what do we do now? But if you use Clerky, you're going to have automatic vesting um, suggested and, 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 you know, you're going to kind of be suggested to do the standard things. So I think that is one way, but on a lot of these issues, as you can tell, you know, I've been doing this work for 17 years. There is something about having seen it play out so many different ways and through different economies and, uh, and markets that, is really hard to distill into a product. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to that. And maybe eventually AI will be able to answer some of these simple questions. And also um, my law firm, Ventures Council, we're going to do a series of short videos kind of explaining concepts. Um, it's going to be called Upstarts, 
uh, like legal hacks. And uh, so that's like, keep an eye out for that. That'll be coming. I'm also going to have more blog posts and more content out there um, because I do really want to get some of these basic principles, best practices out there. People are making these mistakes less, like they're able to spend more money and honestly have the peace of mind to not worry about this and um, spend more money and their mental headspace in, in better ways. Yeah, we will. I'd love to help you with that uh, because, as you know, this is what my my other company does. So, the short answer is that there's no shortcut, and I kind of wish that, like, when I was giving away those shares, that I would just like pick up the phone and I had somebody like you at the time. You, I mean, you're, you're whoever your lawyer was kind of was sleeping because this is our job is to educate our clients on some of these basics, mm-hmm. um, you know, and. And like give them forms, like we give all our clients free forms that have baked in like an advisory agreement with standard vesting, like, you know, helping the client to self-help in a way that is productive. And, you know, at the same time around the equity component, there's like corporate consents, there's pricing concerns, there's securities law. I cannot give that to a client. Every time I've done it, it's been a, a massacre and they end up costing, spending a lot more to fix it then. So there are certain things that lawyers just have to do, but there are a lot of things that we can equip our clients to handle internally um, with the right support structure and education. And that is the lawyer's job. So, you know, and I think a lot of lawyers too are like, they are very aware of their high rate, to be honest, like associates at a law firm don't set their rate. They just have to be charged out at whatever the firm decides. They really often want to do a great job. They want to like equip their clients, but they're terrified because their rate is high. They're like, I don't want to do this proactively. They have to come and talk to me. Plus they're often very busy, like requires a little bit more headspace to be able to think in the strategic way uh, that a lot of busy associates don't really have. So, um, and then to have the experience like that also just takes some time and uh, to accrue that. So I understand the 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 burning need for some other option and for a lot of these questions, like just really solid, competent legal counsel that you trust. And that may not be the same for you and your friend, right? Um, they may have a great experience with a lawyer and you may not feel that same sense of um, compatibility and trust and that, you know, it, that they have your back. If you have that though, it it's like an investment in yourself, you know, just like like therapy or coaching. It's a resource that allows you to unlock more capability yourself. And that's really, and it's so rewarding for us when we're able to do that for our clients as well. So it, it really is the best of both worlds. That's amazing advice. That's really important because when you think about the headache that it will save you later, it's worth making that initial investment. Well, look, uh, Arvinda, this has been amazing. I'm going to have you back. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Look forward to having you back on the platform and helping you uh, help as many founders as possible. Yeah. And also just a shout out to you, Somi, like you are also my favorite person right now in that you're just so generous with your time. And also you have way too much energy. Like you definitely need to sleep more. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, But your fire and your verb and your just vigor with all of this, um, it's clear you have a very directed passion and it includes really elevating other startups and putting together like helping this ecosystem be healthy. Um, And I just, I wanted to also shout out to you for all the amazing work that you do on so many, 
so many different levels, Renaissance level, you know, Renaissance woman level of uh, <laughs> facility. Um, yeah. And you do them all really well. So anyway, delighted. It was like, such an amazing chance to uh, have met you and establish this fruitful long-term relationship. Likewise. Likewise. I feel exactly the same. Thank you so much, Arvinda. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to having you back. Awesome. I look forward to it as well. Bye everyone. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Aravinda Sashadri of Ventures Council. If you're ever looking for a startup lawyer in Silicon Valley, look no further. I'm so proud to call her our service partner at Inkbeat. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcasts so that you don't miss the future episodes. It will mean the world to me if you leave a review and share the podcast with others who you think might enjoy it.